of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. Father, thank you for calling us into your presence. Now we pray that you would not only receive our worship, but you would receive us as your people as we seek to ascribe glory and honor to your name. Be glorified during this hour. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our hymnals to number 94. 94 and sing how firm a foundation. And you may be seated. Our Old Testament reading tonight comes from Isaiah chapter 43. And we'll read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 43. 
hear God's word. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This ends this reading of God's word. If you'll take your bulletin in hand now, you'll find in our order of worship a corporate confession of sin, and we'll use these words to confess our sins aloud to God. After that, we'll have a few moments of silence where we can silently and individually confess our sins or also lift up any other concerns of prayer we might have to God. So let us pray together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Father, it's so often in silence uh, that you meet us and desire to meet us, but we're so slow and reticent to be in silence, and so we come to you now in this quietness and ask that you would deal with our hearts, the deepest part of ourselves, that you would minister to us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us and build us up in our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the arms of our dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. He promises to be with us in the floods and in the fire. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith tonight, that we might believe that. 
I lift up those in our congregation who are hurting, those whom we love who are hurting, and pray for your lavish grace to be upon them. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bear us up on eagles' wings, uh, that we might believe where we can't see, that we might walk by faith and not by sight. And we pray again for the forgiveness of sins. We believe that you are a God who is more ready to forgive than we are to confess. And so we say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, sinners. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Our assurance of pardon comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 43. This is the Apostle Peter preaching. He says, And we are witnesses of all that Christ did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So it is him who is the judge of the living and the dead who promises that through him we can receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. Receive his forgiveness tonight and experience it in your heart. Amen. Now as we take up the evening offering, we will also sing a hymn. Uh, so if you'll open your hymnals to number 676, 676, we will sing day by day and with each passing moment as the offering is collected.
I would invite you to turn with me now to our New Testament reading from which the sermon will be based, and that's 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 10. Hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And this ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing as we study it. Father, send your spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ that we might read, learn, and inwardly digest your holy word. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. So on Sunday evenings, we are continuing a series that I entitled Dealing with Spiritual Slumps. Uh, that was based on outline from Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And tonight I want to talk about going through trials or tests or tribulations. And very often we find ourselves spiritually down because we're going through trials. And trials can tend to make us question God and God's purpose in our life and God's presence in our life. Tests are difficult, and you can remember being a student, some of your students now. Uh, Tests can cause panic and depression. I have a daughter who took the ACT yesterday. I understand that very well. In verse 6 of our passage, Peter describes the Christians he's writing to saying, they have the joy of salvation, but they've been grieved by various trials. The King James Version translates it that they were in heaviness through manifold temptations. The basic idea is to be weighed down by sadness because of circumstances. So I want to talk about that tonight, about dealing with trials, getting through trials when they're causing spiritual slumps. So three points. We're going to talk about the necessity of trials, the purpose of trials, 
and finding hope in trials. Number one, the necessity of trials. So again, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't like the word necessary. You stand in line because it's necessary. You get a colonoscopy because it's necessary. You do your taxes because it's necessary. Why would Peter say that trials are necessary? Well, you don't see the Greek phrase that the ESV uses to translate necessary many times in the New Testament. But when you do, it always relates to God's plan of salvation, either for individuals or for the world. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus was, is meeting with these disciples who uh, are struggling with the fact that they thought Jesus was the Messiah, but then the Roman soldiers crucified Jesus, and they, but they meet the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road, and they don't realize who he is. And they say, you know, we thought that this guy was the Messiah, but he was hanged on a cross and died, it's, which... You know, it's the exact opposite. Of course, he is the Messiah because he hanged on a cross and died. That's a major part of his plan, but they don't realize this. And so Jesus kind of rebukes them in verse 25 of Luke 24, and he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? One more example. When Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, Starting in verse 2, he says this. It says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So this word, necessary, phrase in Greek, is often used... Uh, to demonstrate things that were a necessary part of God's plan for salvation, such as Jesus Christ suffering and dying. And so Peter is saying, in our passage, us facing trials is a necessary part of God's plan for our life. It's not a permanent part of God's plan, but it's a necessary part of God's plan. It's something that happens for a time, or as the King James puts it, for a season, and you have to learn in the midst of those seasons of suffering and trials to preach to yourself and to remind yourself this is a necessary part of what God's doing, but it's not a permanent part of what God's doing. You remember, it's a season, it's only a season, but it's a necessary season. Charles Spurgeon suffered from the gout and depression and all sorts of ailments. He ended up dying in his 50s. And as he got older... He had struggled for years with why, God, are you allowing these sorts of things to happen to me? Why are you putting me through these trials? And an older, wiser, seasoned Spurgeon said this, Depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing as a John the Baptist, heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer benison. So what Spurgeon is saying, he realized that the suffering he went through was necessary, 
because it was like a rough prophet, like a John the Baptist who was reminding him, this is for a season. Season After darkness will come light. After the struggle will come triumph. So that's point one. Trials are necessary. Here's point two. Let's talk about the purpose of trials. So I just said that trials are meant to point to hope for a better future, light after darkness. But what do you do with that in the present before the light comes? And in verse 7 of our passage, Peter says that these things happen so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying trials are meant to test. Trials are the way... It's not necessarily that God is testing the genuineness of your faith. He knows your heart. He knows the genuineness of your faith. But trials are a way of God showing to you the genuineness of your faith. And you can see this. The classic example in the Bible is the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, starting in verse 8, Satan comes in the heavenly council before God and basically asks for permission to tempt and to tempt Job and to put Job through trials. And this is the dialogue. It says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan is saying, the reason why Job is so blameless and upright is because he hasn't been tested. He hasn't been tried. And God is saying, basically, I'll show you, Satan. Watch. When my servant goes through the fire, he will come out on the other side whole because I'm going to be with him. Trials are meant to prove our faith. They are meant to separate the wheat from the the counterfeit from the genuine. You see that in Jesus' parable of the sower in the New Testament. He talks about the seed that falls on rocky ground, and when temptation and trial comes, because it's on rocky ground, the weeds can come up and choke out the seed of the word and choke out faith. Trials separate the wheat from the weeds. Peter uses the analogy of metal being refined by fire. That's what suffering is meant to do for us. Trials are meant to do for us. This is a common theme in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Just a couple of examples of that. In Zechariah chapter 13, starting in verse 9, it says this, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. So Jesus is talking about this remnant of believers he's going to put through the fire and what's the fire going to do it's going to cause them to call out to God and God is going to deliver them from their trial one more Malachi chapter 3 verse 3 says God's messenger will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord That is a fascinating passage, particularly because it uses the phrase 
that God's messenger will sit as a refiner over this fire that they're going to be put through. And it's, it's interesting because it points to the practice of cupellation. And that was a process where silver was put in a cupel or a flat dish and heated up until the silver would start to liquefy. And some of the impurities as it, as it liquefies begin to be vaporized by the heat or they begin to stick to the content of the dish. And the refiner sits over the dish watching, adjusting the fire and its temperature, controlling it. And he judges the purification process by how clearly he can see his own reflection in that liquid silver. And when he sees himself clearly, he knows that the purification process is complete. One author said, What a marvelous thought to reach the end of a trial and realize that the Father, the master craftsman of the universe, sat beside us the entire time we were going through trials. Indeed, he watches over the furnace, ever aware of how much heat to apply and how long we must stay in the fire, so that all impurities may come to the surface, and he can see more and more of his reflection in us. Again, when you're going through trials, you preach this to yourself. This is a necessary but temporary trial. God is doing this in order not to torture me, not to torment me, but to sanctify me, to burn away my impurities so I can become more and more of what he wants me to be. So this leads to point three, finding hope in trials. This already begins to point toward our hope, but I want to dig a little more deeply into it. So back to our passage. Let's read verses 7 through 9. We go through these trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter points us toward three points of hope here. The first is that, we've already covered, your endurance in trials will result in the refining of your faith, which will result in praise and glory and honor. It glorifies God when you faithfully endure, endure trials. And it strengthens your faith when you faithfully endure trials. There's an old saying, if you don't go through tests, you don't have a testimony. And God puts us through tests so that we will have testimonies that glorify him. The second hope here is that you're going to obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The Bible uses different tenses for salvation. It says we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We've been justified. We've been completely accepted by God through the death, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we are being sanctified. God is conforming us more and more into the image of his Son as we behold Christ's glory and are, transfor and are transformed. But we also will be saved because we will be glorified. One day the silver, the gold is going to be completely refined and is going to be perfect. And Peter says, 
You're fighting through these trials because you want to obtain that final salvation of your soul. And then the third hope here that I want to park on for just a few minutes. Peter mentions Jesus over and over again in this passage. He says that Jesus is guarding us through faith for an inheritance that even though we don't see him now, we're rejoicing in him. And I think about that. You think about the times in your life where though you've never physically seen Jesus Christ, he has brought you more joy than anyone you ever have physically seen. And if you've experienced that, imagine when we finally do stand before him. You know, we know not what we're going to be, but when we appears, when he appears, we're going to be like him, John says, because we're going to see him as he is. And anyone who thus hopes, he says, purifies himself as God is pure. If you've rejoiced in Jesus whom you haven't seen, think about the fact that you're going to see him and the joy that that's going to bring. And John says, that's how you purify yourself now. That's how you strive for holiness and sanctification now. You think about the Apostle Peter who wrote this letter about his experience with Christ. He's writing this letter and you can't separate it from his experience. When he goes through his biggest trial as a believer, we read about it in Luke chapter 22 and other places. What's his biggest trial? He denies Christ three times. When the fire gets hot, he says, I don't even know him. He starts to utter curses. In Luke 22... When Jesus is warning Peter that this is going to happen, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you and sift you like wheat. That's harkening back to the book of Job. Peter's about to go through a Job experience. And then Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you're about to go through a necessary and temporary trial. But this wasn't outside of God's plan. It was God's plan. And Jesus loved him. He's praying for him. He's guarding him during the process. And he tells Peter, you're going to come out on the other end of this. It's temporary. And when you do, here's what I want you to do. Strengthen your brothers. Use the strength that you receive during this trial and pass it on. Strengthen others who are going through trials. And that's precisely what Peter is doing in 1 Peter. He's taking that strength he gained from Christ and he's Christ and he's trying to pass it on from to us. Now in Peter's restoration in John chapter 21 starting in verse 18, 18, here's what Jesus says to him. Truly truly I say to you when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John puts in parentheses, this Jesus said to show by what, by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Jesus was telling Peter, as all the historians, the commentators believe, he's warning him, just like I was crucified, you're going to be crucified. And history tells us that did happen to Peter. He was crucified upside down. 
because he didn't believe he was worthy to be crucified right side up in the same manner as his Savior. But you ask the question, how could Jesus possibly know that flighty Simon, son of Jonah, uh, that this man who was so impetuous, so unpredictable, so impulsive, so prone to deny Christ that he was going to be faithful literally to the point of martyrdom. How could Jesus know that? Was it because he looked deep down in Peter's heart and saw that Peter was really a strong guy after all? No. Jesus knew his plan for Peter. He was going to accomplish his plan for Peter. The trial that Peter was going to face was going to be necessary in God's plan. But it was also going to be temporary. Because on the other side of that crucifixion, Peter was going to stand before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and see him in his resurrected, exalted glory. And Peter is happier now than he was when he wrote this letter because he's standing before the presence of his Savior. And what that tells us is you don't have to be confident in yourself to face trials. But you can be confident in Christ's ability to bring you through trials. He has saved you. He is saving you. He will save you. The refiner knows just the right amount of heat to apply, to purify us. He's not going to burn us up because he was burned up for us. That's what the cross is. It was him going through the fire so that he could say, when you go through the fire, I'll be with you and the flame will not consume you. He was consumed so that we wouldn't be consumed. And so he guards us through faith for an inheritance And as he does so, he refines our faith because he is conforming us to his image and he's doing it through trials. John Ortberg tells a story that he got from a friend named Tom Schmidt and Tom regularly visited hospitals and nursing homes to try to minister to suffering people. This is Tom's story. On this particular day, I was walking in the hallway of a hospital that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. As I neared the end of this hall, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. I learned later that this woman was 89 years old and she had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway, but I put a flower in her hand and said, Here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, Thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know. I am blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. 
Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm and that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came later. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She'd often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. One day, as I was lost in my thoughts, the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even being able to know if it's day or night? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and I thought, for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes and I asked what do you think about Jesus she replied slowly and deliberately I think about how good he's been to me he's been awfully good to me all my life you know I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned but I don't care I'd rather have Jesus he's all the world to me and then she began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. I knew this one woman. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really can live like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't ha have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here was an ordinary human being who received supernatural power to do extraordinary things. Her entire life consisted of following Jesus as best she could and her, in her situation. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, prayer, meditation on scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving what she had, whether it was a flower or a piece of candy. Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. For anyone who really saw Mabel, who was willing to turn aside a hospital bed, became a burning bush, a place where this ordinary and pain-filled world 
was visited by the presence of God. Do you believe such a life is possible for an ordinary human being? Do you believe that it's possible for you? This is promised in the gospel. The good news proclaimed by Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news, as Jesus preached, is that now it is possible for ordinary men and women in this pain-filled world to live in the presence and under the power of God. So the heaviness of sorrow, the grief of trials, they're necessary, but they're temporary. This woman endured them, but she didn't have to endure them always. And the same is the case for us. And while we do endure them, they're transforming us. They're messengers in rough clothes. They are John the Baptist coming to us saying, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only look. Preach this to yourself. Let us pray. Father, we've all known saints who had power that we wish that we had. I think of John Wesley on that Moravian ship as the massive storm tossed that ship to and fro and he was petrified. While these normal Moravian men, women, and children sang hymns of faith. And Wesley said, are you afraid of dying? And one by one they said to him, we're not afraid of dying. Because they believed the truth of the gospel. They believed what Jesus said. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that if anyone believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We've experienced so much joy in beholding the glory of Christ spiritually. But help us to look forward to that day when we will behold him face to face. And as we think on that hope purify us and conform us into his likeness for we ask it in Jesus name amen let's stand together now and sing our closing hymn which is number 402 abide with me 402 
Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.